Good morning, everyone. Actually, good afternoon. Very much the afternoon, isn't it? Welcome from me. I'm Jo. For those of you who don't know me, I'm, I'm a curate here at Trinity. Big welcome from me. Well, this morning, actually this afternoon, I will do that numerous times. Sorry, everyone. This afternoon, I want you to imagine something with me. I want you to imagine you're, you're at that moment at a wedding reception. You've arrived and you know that there's going to be a seating plan. So you go over to the seating plan, and your day can go one of two ways from that point. You all know what it's like. You know it can be amazing because you've been put next to that friend that you've not seen in a while, or your family that you really like, or your heart can drop at the sight of your Uncle Roger's name or your Auntie Gertrude who they've put you next to because, you know, oh, Joe won't mind, you know, she's, she's nice, you know, she'll, she'll keep conversation going. I do mind, everyone, I do mind. I shouldn't mind, but I do mind. You all know that feeling when that happens. Well, I was in a situation similar to that recently. I was at an event with a seating plan, and I, I arrived late, and I was, I was rushing, and I, I was last to sit down at this seating plan table. I sat down, and you know, I kind of looked to the person next to me, the last seat on the table. I sat down and sat next to this person. I thought, right, I'll, you know, this wasn't a small talk situation. I knew I was going to be in it for the long haul. So I thought, right, I'm going to have to kick off some conversation. So I tried to get the conversation going. You know, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll try a few little tactics to, um, to sort of, you know, get to know each other. However, it became very quickly apparent that we didn't have much in common. We weren't the same age, we weren't the same demographic, we weren't from the same background. We didn't have many shared experiences, and, and it did become very quickly apparent that this person hadn't particularly warmed to me, and I honestly hadn't particularly warmed to them. But we both knew that you know, we had quite a long time to spend together, and it was a Christian event, so there was lots of time for discussion which, you know, is challenging with people you like, right? So <laughs> it was an interesting time. But this, it, was, it was a strange thing that happened throughout this sort of extended period of time, similarly sort of time to, to a wedding. This thing happened where we started, as we, as we sort of carried on pursuing conversation, probably a little bit through gritted teeth at times, we started to, to, to sort of both be a bit more disarmed and... After a while, we started to, to sort of warm to each other a little bit. And, you know, there was this moment, this sort of like critical moment in the conversation. It could have gone one of two ways. I asked her a question, and it was a bit of a vulnerable question, really, and, and it could have fallen flat on its face at that point. She could have just got up from the table at that point, left the room, and that would have been the end of it. But to her credit, she, um, she lent in, and she, um, she answered my question, and it, it kicked off uh, the next hour of conversation. And um, actually, everyone else left the room. There was no obligation for us to stay there. And um, we ended up having this hour of conversation where we were able to pray together, and actually, we wept together. We shared each other's hearts, our stories. We encouraged each other. And it went from this um, place where the person I thought was sort of irreconcilably different from me, this person had become my favorite person on the table. Now, what was the difference between the beginning and the end? What was the difference? Well, 
the difference, I think, for me, honestly, was that I stayed at the table for long enough to get to that point, to get past my sort of superficial judgments, the things that I thought were just beyond bridging the gap. I stayed there for long enough, and so did she. It was a choice that we made. We may have started with obligation of having to be there, but it became a choice. And then, secondly, the Holy Spirit, you know, made it possible for, for two very different people to find actually really deep communion and connection together. Now, what does this encounter that I had recently have to do with circumcision in Galatians, I hear you ask? Well, circumcision for the Jewish community, it really determined who was in and who was out. It determined, it really, really determined who was the sort of the same as me and who's different to me. Just like I had made that judgment about whether the person next to me was, you know, my type of person, someone that I could connect to, the Jews would have done the same thing with circumcision. It was a crucial part of their identity. And let's remember that for the, for the most part, new communities of Jesus followers in the early first century Palestine, they, they were predominantly Jews who had believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They were Jews. It was a Jewish community. It was only really when Paul came along and, and starts to share the good news with those beyond the Jewish community that problems started to emerge. And this is the kind of, this is the context in which our passage is from this morning, this afternoon. And we're experiencing in this passage some of the tensions that are emerging out of this transition moment. This transition moment from a movement that was predominantly defined, you know, the Jewish people knew who they were, they knew who belonged, it was defined, it was clear. And now we were entering into this unknown territory of a less defined community, unclear, maybe a bit uncomfortable. The question of in and out didn't matter so much before, but now, in this mixed community, it really started to matter. And as a side note, you know, those of you who've been around longer than me will probably know that transition moments, you know, these, these sort of tension, transition moments, they're real opportunities of um, breeding confusion of sowing lies, of, of, of just little untruths getting in when things are moving from one thing to another. And, and a vacuum of communication in a moment of transition can lead to all sorts of lies getting embedded in. And this is why, it's why Paul is, is at pains in this text to get across truth over lies that could potentially set in at this point in the community. We've talked about Paul being angry in Galatians, and he's certainly angry here. What's happened is that troublemakers in Galatia have basically said to the Galatian church, you know that, that gospel that Paul preached to you? Well, actually, it wasn't really the full gospel. And actually, you know, to be saved, fully saved, you, there's actually extra things you need to do. And one of those is circumcision. That's why we're hearing about it so much in this passage. It's why in verse three, Paul makes the point of saying that Titus had not been circumcised. 
pretty personal thing to bring up in a letter. Poor Titus, but it's, he makes the point of doing it. He says, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. He's making the point by saying this. Even Titus, this person, this leader in your community, was not circumcised because he doesn't need to be. No extra thing is needed to be part of the family of Jesus. Why does this matter? Why does it matter so much to Paul? Well, in verse 5, it tells us why. It says, we did not give in to them for a moment. As in, give in to them, that is the, the people preaching the false gospel. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You see, what is at stake here, if, if Paul doesn't clarify this point, is the gospel message itself. It's not just a side issue. It's the gospel of grace that is at stake. This gospel that we've talked about the past few weeks that says, really, that, that Christ Jesus is enough. His grace is enough to make you worthy. His, his grace. Nothing extra is needed. Where circumcision determined who was in and who was out. Now Paul is wanting to be abundantly clear that Jesus had completely rewritten the rule book. And the second part of our, of our reading this morning, this afternoon, I told you I'd do it a lot, this, the reading this afternoon, is, is really, it's, it's a sort of setting in practice the theory that Paul had been talking about until this point. Verses 11 to 14, let's read them again together. They say this, when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Paul does not pull any punches here, does he? He is publicly rebuking Peter, a fellow apostle. He's publicly rebuking him in front of the Galatian church for withdrawing from the table with non-Jewish people. That's what's going on here. Peter has basically taken himself away from the, the community of Gentiles because, you know, he was a bit bothered about what James and his friends might think. A biblical scholar, John Barclay, says the following about this moment. All we can say is that a dispute arose over meals and that Peter withdrew from eating with Gentile believers. The sharing of common meals, which included the Lord's Supper, was central to the formation of Christian communities as it expressed their common identity and their commitment to one another and shared allegiance to Christ. So Peter's withdrawal was a catastrophic breach of fellowship. It implied that these Gentiles were not fully members of the assembly in Antioch. We cannot underestimate the size and the magnitude, the absolute magnitude 
of this decision of Peter's. He's making an identity statement here. He's making a gospel statement. It was a huge deal. So Paul wasn't going to let it slide. It undermined the very good news of the gospel. The good news that says grace is given to all, not because we're worthy, but to create worth in each of us. If we start living in a way that doesn't actually speak that, doesn't embody it, we've got no gospel at all. To remove yourself from the table is to clearly state that you don't think Christ has done enough to sit next to me. You don't think Christ has done enough for me to sit next to you. There's too much to separate us. We can't possibly, you know, get along. Perhaps even you're on a lower level to me. It creates hierarchy. It creates division in community. And Paul just wasn't going to stand for that because this is the community that was called and charged with the task of embodying the gospel that they were preaching. If it's true in theory, if the gospel of grace is true in theory, it has to be true in practice too. The church is a community of grace. We display that by enabling anyone to join us. We embody it by eating together by saying anyone can sit down at the table with me. It's why when Peter removes himself from that place, it was over. And Jesus, around the meal table, reset the standard. He lived a different way. Jesus, the Jew, ate with anyone who wanted to eat with him. The same scholar, John Barclay, says this about the um, first century. We know that Jews in antiquity were wary of eating meals regularly with non-Jews, especially if such meals created so strong social bonds. You know, you only have to look at that beautiful story of the woman who poured perfume on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet dry with her hair at the meal table to know that Jesus completely went against every expectation of him as a Jewish male in his time. He was not following the same rules, the same table etiquette. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He ate with men and women. He ate with his friends. He ate with those he'd never met before. He was killed in part because of who he ate with. It cost him a lot. And he invites you and me to sit at the table with him. And because he invites you and me, it enables us to invite others to sit down with us. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. This is the vision of what a gospel-shaped community can look like. It sounds idyllic, doesn't it? It sounds like the kind of community you'd want to be a part of. Surely, Joe, I'm going to go with this vision, I can hear you say. But let me tell you, as I'm sure others of you have experienced, the reality of this is challenging sometimes. It's not as easy as it sometimes sounds. The idea of it is sometimes easier than the reality. I remember a man that John and I um, sort of built a relationship with a few years ago. He was a man that had just left prison. He, um, he was trying to get his life together. He was on the streets. 
And he just sort of hung around um, on a street near our, our old house. And, you know, he didn't really fit a box. He'd actually encountered Jesus in a really powerful way in prison. So much so that when I prayed with him one time on the street, he just started praying in tongues. It was the most powerful moment <laughs> and something I'll never forget. And yet, I couldn't get my head around it. So I was like, you've, you've met with Jesus, and, and yet you're still struggling <laughs> to get your life together. You know, that was my first judgment, number one. Anyway, we invited him back for lunch one day. And um, I tell you that not because it was a particularly amazing thing to do, but because it was actually incredibly awkward. It was probably more awkward for him, to be honest. Here we were, this sort of nice young professional couple in a nice house and with nice sofas and inviting him in. And he hadn't showered in a long time and, you know, had gangrene on his feet and a gammy leg. And to make matters worse, we didn't have the best stocked fridge at the time. I, um, for those of you who know me, you'll know I like my food. Not, it's not just food, it is pregnancy, but I do like my food. And um, my favorite food, don't judge me for this, is smoked salmon. I have very expensive tastes. Um, and just so happened that that day, John had been a very kind husband and bought me some as a treat. And when I went to the fridge, because I thought, I need to make some sandwiches for us, as we've just invited this guy back to our house. Guess what all that I had to put in the sandwich was, of course, smoked salmon. So here we were with this poor guy who sort of said yes to coming to our house. And we sat around the table eating smoked salmon sandwiches with him. And he very quickly told us they were disgusting. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was, it was an awkward encounter. It was a really awkward encounter. But it was also, it was also really precious. You know, there was a ridiculousness to this scene. You know, these, we were just very different. We were from very different walks of life, very different experiences. And we were, you know, sat across the table trying to meet in the middle. And you know, the only thing that helped us meet in the middle was Jesus. There was nothing else that we had to offer him and he had nothing else to offer us. It didn't make sense to our neighbors. It didn't look like it really, you know, what, what was that about? Why would they do that? But it kind of turned into this just precious time. Jesus bridges the gap. He makes it possible for us to sit at the table with people who are nothing like us. You know, almost every other community in society gathers around some sort of external standard. Something that says that they belong together might be experience, interest, demographic, age, gender, opinion. That's what we do as human beings. And yet, as the Christian community, we're called to something completely different. You know, look around you. Would you normally be spending, you know, your time with, with us, with us lot? It's a strange thing we do, isn't it? We're all from such different backgrounds, different walks of life, different life experiences, different cultures, and yet we, we gather around the table that Jesus sets for us. It's why at the heart of our worship is sharing the Lord's Supper together, gathering around the table 
that Jesus sets for us. You know, it's what defines us as a community. Our measure isn't what experience you have or what interest you have. It's the grace of Christ. That's what unites us. That's what enables us to overcome anything that might get in the way. The table is essential to our faith. The table speaks of welcome. It speaks of shoulder-to-shoulder relationships, not hierarchical ones. It allows you to enter in as one who is loved by Jesus and me to enter in as one who is loved by Jesus. And that is all that defines us. It's why no matter how um, large we get as a church, how varied the demographic, how impractical it may be, we will always put eating together as top priority in our church. It's why we were so keen to launch our hub nights, just to have an opportunity to, to eat together across the city. Not because it's a gimmick, not because it's going to get people in, but because eating together, sitting around a table with people for an extended period of time, it shapes the people that we become. And so it's, it's, it's why what Peter does here in this text is, is a grievous sin against the community. It's a betrayal of the gospel itself. And we may sit in judgment over Peter in this moment. We may think, how could he possibly have done that? And yet, there are many reasons that I've experienced in life, and I'm sure you have too, that you've been tempted or have indeed left the table. It may not be circumcision for you that does it, but there are plenty of other reasons that we can leave the table. Maybe a bit like my story at the beginning, it's prejudice, it's, it's judging someone before you've really given them a chance. You know, it's, it's, it's really just making that judgment in your heart, you're just a bit too different to me. Our cultures, they just don't, they don't overlap. I couldn't possibly understand you. You couldn't possibly understand me. I just won't even try. You're from a different background to me. It might even be your judgment of yourself. I'm not, I'm not good enough to sit with them. I'll just stay on the edge. It might be like Peter, that you feel the pressure of what other people think. What if they see me eating with that person? What would they think? Just be easier to let someone else do it. I'll stay back from the table. Or maybe it's comfort. Maybe it's just too, like, too much like hard work. It's hard. It's hard to keep showing up to the table to keep welcoming others to the table. It's hard when the chasm seems quite large in between you and another person. And you'd just rather not be exposed to someone different to you. Perhaps it's differing opinions that causes you to walk away from the table. Perhaps you've heard, oh, they're a bit right-wing, or they're a bit left-wing, Whatever it might be, oh, they wear a mask, they don't wear a mask, I don't, want, I don't want to sit on a table with them. 
Or maybe it's a fence. Maybe you've got up and left the table or attempted to because you've been offended. You know, I, l- I learned this week um, that young people sort of, probably, I probably still fall in the bracket, below 30, just below 30, are known as the verbally silent generation. Youthscape, a, a charity working on the ground with young people, did this large research project with sort of 16 to 18-year-olds where they basically just interviewed them about life and about faith. And they gave them an opportunity in this interview. They basically just said, ask us anything about faith. It was sort of guerrilla Christian vibes. They could ask anything they wanted to. And they found, they found this fascinating thing that happened in pretty much all of the interviews, was that the young people just stayed silent. They didn't ask any questions. Now you'd think, oh well, it's just a post-Christian culture, they're not interested. But actually, what happened was that they messaged their questions afterwards on WhatsApp to the people, which demonstrates they do actually care, and they do have all the same questions that you'd expect a young person to have about life and faith as they're discovering what they think about things. So it's not that they're apathetic, but they actually have what they termed a buried spirituality. And you know the reason that that happened? Because all the young people that were interviewed are living in a culture that is absolutely petrified of saying the wrong thing. They're petrified of asking the wrong question, of offending someone with their question. So it was just easier to send a little message, not quite so confrontational. As a society, we are facing this sort of collective paralysis in our culture because we're so afraid of offending each other. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not advocating a culture of offense in our church. However, the problem with our society isn't necessarily the first part. The problem is that there's no way back from offense. We live in a cancel culture, don't we? If you get something wrong, if you say something wrong, you're out. There's no way back. We see that in politics all the time. Now, that's the world we live in. That's the the water we're swimming in. And yet the church is called to be something so different to that. Like I said, it's not like we're seeking to offend people, but if we're in a culture where actually you can't return from offense, you can't either offend someone or be offended and then return to the table, that's an issue, right? Because that's a culture that's not defined by grace. doesn't make it easy. It's probably one of the hardest things to come back to the table from. And I'm sure, like me, you will have been tempted, if not have already left the table in in those circumstances. But if we settle for that culture, if we settle for the cancel culture that says, if you say something wrong, if you do something wrong, if dot, 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 Whatever your parameters might be, I'm out and I'm not coming back. What gospel do we have to give the world? A world that is living in fear. Young people that are growing up not being able to ask a question because they're petrified of getting it wrong. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. I wonder where you are this morning, this afternoon. Number six, is that? 
<laughs> Perhaps you've been offended. Perhaps you've already left the table. You might be here in body, but in heart, you know, you've gone. You're just in that place where your heart just isn't open to relationship because you've been offended. And to risk sitting at the table again, oh well, it's just too hard. But what if you're called, what if you're called to to bring healing to the very place that you've been hurt? To come back to the table, to dig deep into the grace of Christ, to find courage there and to enter back in. You know, Jesus shared a meal. He shared a meal, an intimate meal where he washed his friend's feet. He shared a meal hours before being betrayed by his friends. He knew it was going to happen. He even talked about it at the meal. And he shared a meal around the table with them, even though he knew that was going to happen. That's our benchmark. He laid the table rather than removing himself from it. And honestly, there have been countless moments in my life where every ounce of my being wants to leave the room whether that's offense, difference of opinion, whatever. There's been countless moments where every, every part of me just wanted to get up and leave the table. And you know, the only thing that has kept me at the table over and over again is, is imagining that bloody face of Jesus on the cross, the one who never left me at the table, who always looks me back in the eye and says, I did it for you. I made you worthy to come and sit at the table. Come and extend a hand of grace because I've extended it to you. It's the only way we can do it. It's the only way we can come back to the table. It's the only way we can stay at the table in the first place. We can't do it in our own strength. It's just too painful. It's too hard. No amount of willpower will have the same power as the gospel of grace. So where are you this afternoon? Maybe you're in the midst of a choice. Do I stay? Do I go? Maybe you've already left and you're figuring out, can I get back? Maybe you're questioning whether you should lay a table for someone else. But it just feels like too much effort. Or maybe your parameters, your sort of conditions for staying at the table are actually pretty narrow. And you're realizing that this afternoon that actually it wouldn't take much for me to leave. And that's a problem. But what we know from this passage in Galatians, we know that the gospel demands a different narrative to the one that the culture speaks. A community shaped by grace, the grace of Christ, removes all the barriers that would get in between us and another person. It turns difference into wonder. It stops being something that threatens us and starts being something we can wonder at. Gosh, you're so different to me. I love that about you. 
I love the way that you see the world. It's really different to me. It doesn't mean I agree with you on everything, but gosh, can't I wonder in the difference of how God made you? A community of grace turns offense into healing, an opportunity to have a healing environment. I mean, what, a, what good news to a world in pain. If we can say, if we can share stories of where actually, you know, we disagreed with someone, we, we were offended by someone, but we had this beautiful encounter where we exchanged forgiveness and healing. That's good news to a world that cancels people out of their lives as soon as any, any hardship hits. That's a testimony of grace. It turns prejudice into a collage of diversity where we can, where we can wonder, where we can reflect the glory of God in all its multifaceted forms. That's the vision of a community of grace. We're not about creating a sort of homogenous whole at Trinity Church, Nottingham. We want this place to be diverse in all of its colors, in all of its types, in all of its experiences, but it does cost us something. It's not easy. Grace, living in grace is costly and it takes buy-in from each one of us. It takes us all stepping into that vision. And there's a lot at stake if we abandon it. There's a lot at stake if we settle for something less. But to stay at the table is gonna take courage. It's gonna cost us something. It may even lead us this afternoon to repentance. So I'm just gonna invite the Holy Spirit as we, as we just sit for a few more moments and just invite him to come and search our hearts because it will be different for each of us. Our experiences will be different. But I just think the Lord wants to invite us in again. He's the one that invites us to the table. So just invite you to maybe close your eyes, just hold out your hands as a as a sign that you're open to the Lord, just searching your heart. Jesus, we long to be a people that reflect your grace, a community that is shaped by it. Jesus, we are so deeply aware that we can't do it on our own. We can't do this in our own strength. We come to you. Jesus is the one who never leaves us. You never leave us at the table. You always stay with us. And we just invite you, Holy Spirit, to to illuminate to us the moments that we've got up from the table. Maybe in heart, if not in body. The, moment, the, the parts of our hearts that are hardened because we've been hurt. 
Jesus, we just invite you even into the memories of moments of rejection, moments where it's just been too hard to stay. Highlight those to us, Jesus. And I pray that in each of those memories, God, you, you would just show us where you were. Show each of us, Lord, where you were. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would heal the wounds that we carry in relationship. And I particularly pray for those of us who have experienced deep isolation in this, in this season. But don't even know where the table is. Lord, would you extend your arms? Would you gather your children around the table? Would you provide opportunities for connection? Opportunities to be known and to know others. And I pray that you would heal the pain of isolation. Maybe as you've identified something in your own heart, you might just want to imagine just holding that in your hands, whether that's rejection or isolation or judgment or hurt, whatever it might be. Just hold it in, in your mind's eye and hand it over to Jesus. And as you do that, just look in his face, look in his eyes. See who you're handing it to, who you're interesting that to. Lord Jesus, you are the one, the only one who makes a way, makes this vision possible, makes this life possible.